Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, presented by Osiris Media. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Janisha Jones, CEO and founder of Fresh and Sassy Productions, a holding company whose mission is to empower and create an ecosystem of safe spaces for women of color in the music industry. As of our conversation, Janisha had four main initiatives to tell us about. The Pub Royalty Queen podcast, the Juke Joint Nonprofit Foundation, her consultancy Encore Music Tech Solutions, and market research agency A Seat at the Table. Each of these projects contributes to our guest's mission in its own way, and she breaks down exactly in our talk. We linger longest on A Seat at the Table and its research report, A Perspective on Women of Color in the Music Business, which anyone with an interest in equity and inclusion needs to read. Janisha is doing powerful and relevant work, and it's an honor to have her as our guest. Enjoy. I would love to jump right in, if that's okay with you. Certainly, let's go for it. <laughs> you have um, you have a lot going on. I don't need to tell you that. And uh, I wonder if maybe you would do us the honor of maybe starting with a little bit about yourself. Just give us the overview of who you are, what you do, why you do it. And then I definitely have some of the areas that I'd like to dig into with you, but I'd love to hear your story from you. Well, I'm originally from New Jersey and I was relocated to LA about five years ago now uh, with my job at Cobalt Music Publishing. I'm a classically trained musician, singer-songwriter, so I have a passion for creating music to my core. And I earned a bachelor's and master's degree in music and entertainment business from Full Sail University, one of the top media schools in the nation, really as a way to learn how to better promote myself as an artist. But I quickly realized that I would have a little bit more success on the executive side. So that's what I thought out to do. And I started what has now become a 10-year career as a data analyst and music publishing expert working for some of the most revered music companies in the world from Universal Motown and Equine to Cobalt Music Publishing and at Empire, where I am currently a consultant for technology to help expand their business operations. So as a woman of color at the intersection of music and technology, that makes me an anomaly in this space, but my mission is to change that. I'm CEO and founder of Fresh and Sassy Production, which is an ecosystem of safe spaces for women of color in the music industry to help empower them on both the artistic and executive sides of the business. And that company houses several initiatives from a podcast to data research to a nonprofit organization and of course, my music tech consultancy agency. Wow, that was perfect. Thank you. That was very <laughs> helpful. Wow, so there's a lot to unpack and dig into. Let, let me think for a second. I suppose we can't gloss over your artistic background. You don't emphasize it a lot in what you're doing now, but tell me a little bit about that. What, what were you trained in? What was your aspiration there? And what was the realization that you sort of alluded to that made you think that maybe the business side was the right path? So I actually grew up in talent competitions. I was a pageant girl growing up. So performing was something that I've done since I was about five years old. 
it wasn't dancing, it was singing or playing the violin or piano. But I've just been nurtured by my family to pursue the performing arts. And I've excelled at that. But going to school helped me to realize where we were as a as a industry moving from physical sales to digital sales. There was a time where we were just really uncertain where the industry was heading. And so that kind of helped me to move into the independent sector of the music industry because I did start at Universal Motown, SRC Records. I had a chance to understand the operations and how they focus really on the bottom line. And I really wanted to be there to support the artists from the grassroots levels. So being a performer myself, advocating for independent artists was where I saw myself really thriving in this business. People forget as recently as 10 years ago, streaming, it was still very much the beginning of the story. If you think we're in early days now, we were in pre-early days then. People were still talking about if and when we get 100 million users or things like that. It's really amazing to think that it wasn't really that long ago where it was still that uncertain aftermath of the switch to digital and downloads were faltering and nobody really knew what was going right. to happen for sure. <laughs> Yeah, It's true, but it is an exciting time because, I mean, I always look at transitions as an opportunity to position yourself, especially as an entrepreneur. And so during that time, I started my first business, which was called Broken Records, an artist management and self-management platform, one of the first artist services platforms at the time. And unfortunately, artists were not in a place where they were investing in themselves the way that they are now. Um, it was kind of par for the course now as an artist to bring yourself up to a level where you can leverage your success before eyeing a potential deal. So um, it was a learning lesson for me, and as I'm sure it was for many people during that time. If you don't mind me spending just a minute there to just ask you a little bit about how that mindset or how that even the tool sets have changed what were you seeing in the attitudes or the worldviews of artists when you made a run at it then that's different from now? Oh, so many things. First of all, the lack of tools at the time for an artist to become independent, their careers were probably much more bottlenecked by the access and the resources of major platforms. So now that there's a lot more information and a lot more tools available to them, they can become their own boss, essentially. They don't need a large corporation to back them. Although there are obviously give and takes with any situation, independent artists, a lot more work involved in building your career, developing your, your uh, fan base. But, you know, the opposite side of that is to have a large corporation backing you. It might allow you to have a larger fan base to begin with, but then you forego the rights and royalties. So... Yeah. I feel with a lot of independent artists right now, they're foregoing the modern day slavery system of the major record labels. And they're using their the tools that are accessible to them to their advantage. And because not, information is readily available to them, transparency seems to be a way for them to find a more sustainable career here. Do you think of the path of independence for artists through a social justice lens or a, or an equity like how how do you think about it totally i mean this is a relationship driven business and so if you don't have connections into the business you know the majority of folks that are decision makers they're they have access you know they have the ability to leverage their relationships to make things move and so if you don't have those resources you're 
having to do a lot more groundwork and having to deal with a system that hasn't necessarily caught up with the social imbalances or conscious effort to move things forward. So that's just where we are currently. But I, I have an optimistic point of view about it. I do feel like we're moving in the right direction. Talk to me about optimism for a minute. I understand that some people are, that's their nature. And some people, it's their lifeline. They need to be as a protection against despair and the day-to-day reality. I wonder, where do you fall on that spectrum? Like, what, is, what does optimism mean to you? Because it's a word that's hard to grasp onto sometimes in a business context. So what makes you optimistic and what validates your optimism? <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. I've never been asked that question. I feel that optimism is being able to see every day as an opportunity and every challenge as an opportunity to grow. So regardless of whether or not you're losing or you've taken an L, so to speak, you know, something happens where you don't get what you want, there is a lesson to be learned in that. And as long as you can sit with that, evaluate your circumstance and apply the skills and the characteristics to move forward, there's no reason to not be optimistic. I mean, I feel like where we are now with information just flowing very easily between we're global society now. Everybody's connected. I feel there's a level of empathy that we can all tap into with each other to help inspire and grow as well. So optimism to me just means more connectivity, being more in touch with myself, taking the challenges as blessings and applying that to growth. Yeah. Do you think you always had that mindset or is it something you had to learn and develop or is it just who you are? Well, I was raised by parents who have instilled in me a level of confidence and belief in myself. And growing up in talent, you know, doing talent competitions, you have to build a level of esteem to be able to speak your mind and to present your talent. So I think it was something I was just raised with, frankly. (laughs) What's it like as a young person in a competitive world like that? What's it like to lose? When you're so young, how do you deal with that? See, I don't ever think of it as losing. Again, I just think of it as lesson. What happened here that I can apply or learn more about so that if I'm in the situation again, I can overcome that. And I do believe there's a level of having to go back and relive certain lessons before you actually surmount them. So to me, it's just all a process. I, I don't think of losing as something that's detrimental or, I mean, obviously there are consequences to your decisions, but I think losing is is not necessarily something that you choose to do. It just happens if you're not prepared. So you said it better than I'm about to, and so I apologize if I don't paraphrase it well, but when you were talking about who you are and what your mission is, you talked about using your various initiatives really to create opportunities and elevate people of color. Correct. Yeah. I want to go through sort of some of the main sort of pillars of the work you're doing right now and maybe ask you to talk a little bit about how each of those are a vehicle for the mission, if that's okay. Would love to. So let's start with, let's start with the podcast because I feel like that might be somewhat obvious and self-evident, but I don't want to come from a place of making any assumptions. So tell me about your podcast and how it fits. Sure. So Pub World to Queen podcast, I started it at the beginning of last year after a period of time where I was feeling undervalued in my career. 
And I needed a place not only to express myself, but I knew I was at this point in my life where I needed to connect people that were like-minded and expand my network as well. It was also a way for me to validate that I wasn't alone and the things that I was experiencing because, you know, as someone who has often been the only person of color and definitely the only woman of color in the boardroom, it's isolating and there aren't really aren't that many people that you can lean on for support. So I basically networked across and sometimes above to see whether or not what we, <laughs> I was bugging, whether or not to see I was, if I was bugging or not about how I was feeling in this business. Um, Pub Royalty Queen was a, a podcast that I built for women of color in the music industry to share their challenges and their triumphs navigating a white male dominated business. And I learned a lot of stories from these women and some of the difficult things that they've had to maneuver. And I've also been able to give them their flowers because often we're not taught to sit and take in or express gratitude for each other or even just sit with our accomplishments. So that was the space for us to do that. How are you finding that aspect of it? How are you finding the ability to sit with both for you and your guests, what you're observing in terms of being able to sit with expressions of gratitude or compliments. What's that experience like? I think it's often difficult for my guests to receive, you know, their flowers because for a lot of them, they're maybe five years into their career. So they haven't really experienced so much just yet, or they're still pretty green about the business and they're learning as they're going along. But I always want to remind people that this is a very privileged space that we're in. It takes a lot of resources and a lot of relationships and a lot of grind to get where we are. And so if you're someone who manages the project with an artist and can help them make a living doing what they love and you will return, I think that's something to celebrate. And also as a woman of color in this business, we're also pinned against each other a lot of times because there are so few of us in this business we're taught there's only room for one of us in the room. I think being able to have this kind of space gives us an opportunity to build camaraderie and to see ourselves in each other. Do you mind me asking how that manifests, how that attitude is communicated either overtly or subtly to women? Like, how do you come to learn that? And how is that taught either at an individual level or systemically? I do believe that the BIPOC community are very empathetic. So it's not very hard for people to feel connected to each other because you have a shared experience and a shared trauma. A lot of the time, it's a lot easier to connect. But if you're in a system that it feels like they're forcing us to compete against each other, sometimes it takes us taking a responsibility for our own reaction to that and being the antithesis. So it's a deliberate thing, I think, just to be able to say, you know what, I see you, we're going through the same thing. Let's not play into this game and just support one another. What do you get from the conversations in the podcast? What's it done for you? Oh, man, it's just been super validating because, like I said, I, I've experienced a lot of things on my own and have always wanted a place for me to express the things that I was going through. But to be able to share that same experience with someone else or then be able to confirm that I wasn't in my head about it, that I didn't need to gaslight myself or 
you know, that we are all collectively have, sharing some of the same experience. And it gave me the opportunity to not be afraid <laughs> to advocate for myself and to also explore their businesses or opportunities to bring us closer together. So for instance, a seat at the table market research agency was really birthed out of the podcasting. I am like, I mentioned what a career in data analysis in the music industry. And so I use my skill to conduct the first research study on intersectionality in the music business. And I use my relationship via my podcast. And then they shared the survey with their friends in the industry or their colleagues in the businesses that they work with to garner about 100 responses for that survey. And I was able to present that on an international stage last year um, at the Music Biz Conference in Nashville. And it was really well received. Like I said, the music industry is at a place right now where it's attempting to create more space for diverse perspectives. And it's wanting to really create meaningful change, but without data. Being that I'm an operations person, <laughs> without data, it's very hard for them to focus their energy and their resources on things that are really going to propel movement. So research has really been essential in having these women advocate for themselves in the boardroom for better pay. But it's also been crucial for businesses to utilize the data so that they can offer more equitable opportunities for people of color. If we can, I want to spend a significant amount of our conversation talking about a seat at the table. So I wonder, can I park it for one minute and come back? Because I don't want to rush through a conversation there. And I have a lot of questions. So maybe you could take me through what you're doing with your foundation and your consulting work, and then we'll come back. Because it was the thing that I was just very taken. And I really want to understand more about what you were doing there and how it was received. So take me through the other parts of what you're up to. So Juke Joy Foundation, it's a nonprofit organization that provides resources for women of color in the form of scholarships, grants, and access to music-related events. One of the things that we learned from the study, which I know we're going to get into a little bit more, is just some of the barriers to entry, the lack of or wage disparity, even with our family dynamics, things that are a little bit different there, really play into how we're able to show up for ourselves at work. And unfortunately, the music industry isn't yet in a place where we feel is a safe space for us to express ourselves. So Juke Joint is a community. It allows us to network across. It allows us to collaborate on our projects. It allows for student members to be matched to our mentors that are signed up to the platform. It also allows for us to create a little bit of balance when it comes to access to grants or starting our own businesses or scholarships so that we can manage our student loan debt. So yeah, that's essentially what Juke Joint is. It's basically our own community where the music industry wants to invest in us. They'd have to come to us for access to diverse talent. And so do you have to spend a lot of time fundraising? We are actually having our first membership drive on March 4th. And I am working on sponsorship at the moment. Our board members are working diligently at planning our first event for driving membership. Is there something you can point to? I don't know if this is necessarily a a fair question. You can don't feel obligated to answer it the way I ask it. Um, (laughs) Maybe maybe the spirit of what I'm trying to ask will come through if I don't get the words right. But is there a moment that has either existed or that you're working towards with Juke Joint 
where you'll know you did the thing. You'll know that this is what I had in my head and in my heart when I was thinking about this initiative. And here it is. It's manifested. Like, Yes. I would love to see more women of color in senior leadership positions in the music industry. And I feel when that happens, because again, we're going to we're going to speak things into existence over here. I'm an optimist. <laughs> That's the way I operate. But I would love to see more of us in decision-making roles where we are able to take ownership of the work that we're contributing and we're able to change the narrative also in, in the music industry when it comes to how we are represented. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing now many of my follow-up questions are going to just keep taking us back to the research report. So <laughs> I'll move on yet again because this gets us one step closer. Tell me about your consultancy, please. For the past 10 years, I have been um, dealing with rights management systems and royalty processing systems and maintaining integrity of data as, as it flows from one source to the other, which we know is one of the biggest challenges, especially the publishing you know, music industry. Publishing in general is a very shadowy place for a lot of people in this business. So I've actually, I feel lucky to have been able to maintain in this sector specifically because it's given me a competitive advantage. I've used my skills and my knowledge in this space to build systems for empire publishing over the past two and a half years. For instance, a royalties processing system I built with an engineer has increased their revenue by over 700% in the past year. Modules to help expand and scale business and to help internal workflows those are the kinds of things that I specialize in. So Encore Music Tech Solutions is my music tech company where I offer consultancy services to music businesses, major music corporations. When you talk to people who aren't familiar with publishing, it seems like it should be so easy and straightforward. I give you a check, you give me some rights, or I rent some rights from you. And then you would think that as the person writing the check, I would have the ability to take in information and spit out money or take in information and change columns in a, you know, in an accounting <laughs> ledger. Why is it so difficult? I think there is just a fundamental misunderstanding about what publishing is and where royalties actually come from. Artists or songwriters will approach us about, hey, where are my royalties? And they'll ask the wrong person, they'll ask the copyright person what royalties are. But a copyright person knows that in order for us to collect royalties, you need splits. Right. You need to have an understanding of what the shares are and the ownership is of any particular work. And so even just fundamental baseline understanding of publishing yeah. is still an issue. And then when it comes to how you're going to offer a service to a client, um, whether it's admin services or creative services, you still need a platform to be able to maintain the data. And unfortunately, people in this business, we're creatives. We're not tech people, you know, we're not bottom line people. So you need someone who has an analytical mind and the, and the capacity to, to handle those kinds of transactions. We'll be back with more Spotlight On presented by Osiris Media after this break. And now back to Spotlight On. I've always assumed rightly or wrongly that the interests of everyone weren't aligned enough to actually fix some of the fundamental problems. And I hate to view it that way, but 
it seemed like until you know there was there were probably you know the majority of the recorded music era the sources were somewhat finite right there were only only so many ways a work was used or outlets it was used through yeah and now it seems those antiquated systems have just been inundated with so many micro sources of exactly of data and transactions. it's true yeah and so you you garner your relationships to see how you can create better or more streamlined workflows for you to receive information and to report accurately and i think it's a challenge for a lot of companies right now to manage how transparent they're going to be with the client because there's some benefit to not sharing as much information but a lot of independent artists now are actually using that to their advantage, that there are a lot of platforms that are strictly data-based. I have many examples of colleagues in this industry who have really built businesses around being experts at royalty audits and publishing audits, and who, as soon as they serve notice of an audit, basically they just get a check. And it's, please don't come do the audit. Here's, <laughs> here's some money. Go away for another three years. It's easier to do that, and especially because up until 2010, around that time, still paper trailing everything instead of entering into the computers. So we are way past that now. There really is no excuse for paper statement. You know, unfortunately, there are some people that fall behind in that regard. Well, it's interesting as well, and I, and I don't want to linger here too long because I want to make sure we have time to unpack the research report. But what's interesting to me or an interesting thing about this part of your work is that it doesn't take much to draw the line into how it, it impacts the other areas that you care about. And the most base way would be able to say to make sure somebody's getting their money is a pretty radical <laughs> act. Um, but when you, you know, as someone who's clearly a student of the music industry and knows the history of the inequities, those contracts, those practices, those extra contract practices, the things that were just done were part of this, this infrastructure that was anti-artist and anti-person of color often. It's, yeah. I don't think there's any controversy or nobody'd be surprised to hear that in the modern, about the music industry. And I do also want to point out that with the tech technology, because there are so few BIPOC at this, in this space, part of being independent and part of being a consultant in this, so other people see themselves in these operational and tech roles, it offers a lot more of a work-life balance being on the side. You do have a fundamental understanding about the operations of the music business, which I think a lot of people are still just unaware of how things are connected. And so I just want to empower more BIPOC to be in this space. It's basically, you want to, you want to find models. You can do this because they they can do it, or this person's doing it means you can do it. Absolutely. And you see people who look like you represented in these spaces, it gives you the opportunity to see yourself there. But I think that's the challenge right now in the music industry is that they're making strides, so I don't want to come off as we're in a place where just all hope is lost. But I do feel like when you aren't deliberate about your hiring practices, when you're, you're strictly hiring based off of who you know, unfortunately, you lose out on amazing talent and people who have essentially worked their way up 
for an opportunity. And so that that is where we are. And I really hope that the data research and all of these initiatives can bring light to the fact that there is talent out there and they can have access to it and they can utilize these platforms. I remember having it pointed out to me that when you take a job listing, say, and post it on LinkedIn, who sees your LinkedIn posts? It's the people that you came up with, that you went to school with, that you got your career boost from. And unless you're conscientious and deliberate, those people tend to look like you. It's the same. It's you're in the pool. You're in, it's a fact. <laughs> it's a fact. And yeah. um, it was, it's such a simple notion, but so like it was like getting hit with a club over the head. It was like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, it's very easy to stay in that space because, first of all, it's comfortable. It is what you know. And so like the, the deliberate, deliberate effort is what's necessary. When you look around and you say, where is the, where is the exception? You know, where is the diverse perspective around me? And if that's not happening, then you have to seek outside of your bubble. And I think a lot of that has happened. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'd rather you say it than me say it, though, because I think that, no, I, I believe, I mean, I, I listen, I think everybody, everybody should say whatever they perceive the truth to be or whatever right. the objective truth is. But for some people to say it, it's more self-serving than others. Listen, I always tell people, you know what, as a middle-aged white man, I look forward to the day when I'm the minority. And I say that with no irony or self-hating because I've like, we had our chance and I, I'm, I'm okay. You know what I mean? I'm okay. Like, <laughs> I, just because, just because you win doesn't mean I lose. I think that's, the main point right there is that there's enough room for everyone. It's not really a challenge to make room for other people. Sometimes it is checking your privilege, but it's not a privilege in make this much more money than you. And so I'm privileged. It's more, you have access, you have the resources to not only do what you do, but then, and then some. So how can you use the, and then some to help people who don't have that circumstance. That's really what I It's really interesting because a lot of that, you think about people who do worry about if you win, I'm losing. That's like a scarcity mindset as it though is. there isn't enough. There's plenty. It's exactly. just not, it's not allocated appropriately. I couldn't agree more. And I do believe that there are a lot more folks who believe that there's room for everyone than not. So Let's continue to move in that direction. <laughs> yeah. So that, I think that's a good entree, though, to, to a seat at the table. I think that all good data and analysis and clearly like, a, like the product, a research report that you put out tells a story. And I wonder if you set out to tell a story and the data reinforced it or if the data revealed a story to you or maybe, you know, you had some challenges. What happened there in terms of what you validated and what you learned? So initially, I had planned to do this data research analysis prior to starting my podcast. I actually submitted a pitch for the Music Biz Conference in November prior to starting my podcast. I just knew it was something I had to do. I don't know what to call it, divine intervention, or if it was just like, hey, I'm having some struggles. I need some information about this. I don't know what it was, but I'm glad I went for it. Initially, I didn't think that it was going to be selected presentation because such a niche sector of 
our demographic of the music industry. But I think it just speaks to where we are in society that they allowed me to give this information and that they thought it was important. I started the research study first reaching out to a reputable agency, Media Research, who do a lot of analysis on trends in the entertainment industry. And they were so supportive of helping me with this project. The only problem is that, again, it's a very niche demographic that they didn't have access to. And so what they said was they would help me with phrasing of the survey question so that I wouldn't skew results one way or the other. But I would have to do the field work and the field work being surveying, actually going out and asking these questions. So that's what I did. We came up with about 30 questions that stem from barriers to entry, to education, to career development, to family dynamics, to advocating for each other, as well as what it looks like for the industry to advocate for us. And I reached out to a number of my friends in the business and they, they shared it with their friends and they shared it with the businesses that they work at. And then, you know, Recording Academy, the Black Music Collective, the Black Music Action Coalition, Women in Music Organization, Amplify Her Voice, they also shared this survey on their platform. So I was able to take this information and conduct a data analysis on the questions and it wasn't really about phrasing the questions as much as it was about just coll- collecting data. I think when you're coming from the demographic that you're serving, you have an understanding of how they're going to receive the questions. And I think that is part of the challenge when, you know, other corporations have data research, but they don't necessarily know what questions to ask. Or they, you know, they're sensitive about asking certain questions or they just cannot ask certain questions because of red tape involved, politics involved with how they're using this data. So I don't know if it was just the cards aligning or like it's a divine intervention, but I just felt like this was something that was necessary. Presenting it at the Music Biz Conference, there were a few takeaways from that. So the first being this room of people of color just wanting to hear the data, feeling represented by data and being validated with the data, then being able to utilize it to advocate for better pay or asking for better promotional opportunities, asking for things like parental leave or maternity leave opportunities, things of that nature. And then other corporations would come up to me and ask, hey, can you give this presentation at our ERG? Because we need our senior executives to know how to handle their DEI initiatives in a better way, how they can target specific programs that will help drive real change and offer more support to their BIPOC community. So it's, it's just been really gratifying to be able to c- conduct something this meaningful or impactful. But I'm just looking forward to sharing more of this data I'll be presenting it at South by Southwest in March. So that'll be a big deal. Can you rewind a little bit for me and for the audience and tell them what was the nature of the questions you were asking? That's part A of my question. And part B is what were some of the insights that you were able to get out of the research? 
So we start off with demographics. I think it's the easiest way to make sure that we're targeting the right people to answer the question. And so women of color, a lot of people, they automatically assume it just means black people or black women, but really it's everyone that is of color in the world. It's Latin American, it's biracial, multiracial, you know, age from the Asian regions of the world. So I was able to get a lot more than just black women to take the survey. We also defined it by people that are working age because we're specifically speaking about women of color in the music industry, people that are making a living in this business. So we started there and we went into education. What is it that they value? Do they value education? How much women of color are actually going to earn their degrees? Is it necessary? Do they feel it necessary to even have a degree in this business? And some of the revelations for that is that 87% of all women of color earn at least a bachelor's degree or higher degree of education. About 61% enter into student loan debt in order to finance their education. <laughs> so they don't necessarily have the resources to just enter into this business. And then they enter into the business with unpaid internships. I think it was about a third enter with unpaid internships. So there's already this imbalance, this disadvantage entering into the business. You know, this industry is primarily within the major metropolitan areas, so they're not inexpensive places to live. So if there is an opportunity to create any real change, it would be to offset some of that financial responsibility, maybe offer student loan debt repayment assistance akin to 401k matching to help even the playing field a little bit. Another takeaway is that in terms of barriers to entry, mentorship is such a huge aspect Another research study actually conducted spoke about how mentorship can actually increase your bottom line by 40,000 over the span of your career. So having someone that can see your potential, give you the skills or mentor you into a place where you can make more money actually affects your bottom line, actually affects your pocket. It's unfortunate that the majority of women of color in the music industry do not have mentorship. And not only that, when they're working for a corporation, they only ever have access or feedback from their work once a year or hardly ever. So there's no real opportunity to advance when you don't have people who can review your work, you know, and allow you to, like we mentioned before, take an L so that you can grow, <laughs> take a lesson so you can grow. So. Those are some of the key takeaways from each study. Do you make any prescriptions or provide any direction in the report? What are you telling the world that need, or the our industry that it needs to do differently for people or that people need to do differently for themselves? Sure. I think it goes both ways. You can't expect from people what you don't expect from yourself. So I think when we talk about advocacy, women of color also need to look ourselves and see what it is that we're not offering or we're not bringing to the table. Sure, you can work more than 40 hours a week, but is this what your manager wants? If it, How do you know if it's what your manager wants? You have to be able to speak to your manager. You have to be able to have an open conversation, advocate for yourself, say, hey, can we have more frequent meetings? And the other part is, or the other side would be that these corporations need to also understand that status quo isn't 
not really working. We are in a place where black and brown stories are very coveted. I mean, you just look at how hip hop, rap, R&B, Latin music are top selling genres around the world. And these stories are being promoted by people who are not sharing that same experience. And so a lot of what we see in the media is perpetrating an image and a narrative that really isn't accurate. I think there's a lot of growth that can be had on both sides of the story and both sides of the spectrum. The way to meet in the middle is to look at what the study shows, what the data shows, and target those specific challenges to see how we can empower each other and create better opportunities. It would seem like there's a real opportunity for organizations to to create programs around their findings. And I'm wondering, I don't want to ask this in such a way that it sort of creates undue like expectation or pressure. Like you did the work, you put it out there, you've, you're out there sharing it and speaking it. But I wonder, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? How are you seeing the industry react? And I'm curious, you know, it's it's much harder to refute something like this. This isn't you saying I feel or even my experience or I want or my opinion. Like this is this is a bit more objective than that. And I wonder um, what what's the industry saying back to you and how is it acting? I think because we're still very fresh, this is only the first one that's been released. It's still very new, and I'm lucky to have had opportunities to share it on a larger scale. And I just I look forward to sharing it even more. I think what they want and what I'm doing is creating spaces for them to have access to the people that they want to hire. That's really what it boils down to. Is like they want to hire more people of color, more folks that the intersection of music and technology as well, but they don't know where we are. It's like they, like you said, we're not in their bubble. So they need someone to be able to just give them the tools. And I think a lot of people of color, especially haven't focused their energies specifically on being that avenue because they're so caught up in just the day-to-day routine and the being in survival in this business that Maybe it's just not something that they focus their energy on. But I've been fortunate enough to work for someone who really coveted diversity in their businesses and has offered me the opportunity to use my voice where I know a lot of companies just don't allow that. So, yeah, prescription wise, I've been approached by large companies, small companies about this. They all have their different ways that they're managing this. A lot of it is just how do we have uncomfortable conversations? And so I teach them on, it's okay to ask the question. <laughs> it's okay to just be yourself. We're supposed to be different. And as long as you can accept me for my viewpoint on this issue and I can respect you, I think there's opportunity for, for change or for growth and to be more empathetic about each other's experiences. And then there's some people that strictly focus on the data and they're like, listen, we have our own data and research portion of our businesses, but we can't segment it all based off of this kind of demographic. So we need someone like you. And I'm looking forward to working more with those companies who may have the power and the influence to use this data, but need someone like me to usher that into the corporations or their initiatives. That's really interesting because you said something earlier on when you were introducing yourself about creating safe spaces for people. 
this is the same thing, but for organizations in a lot of way, because they can't have these conversations or they think they can't have these conversations either because of policy or regulation or decorum or whatever it is that they think keeps people from being able to talk about these issues. They need a safe space, too, or they at least need to right. feel like there's a safe space. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. To your point, at the conference, someone did ask, how do we get more of the decision makers to come to these conversations? Because the room, it was very evident who thought this conversation was important. And my response was, you can't demonize people. You have to also make it a safe space for them. This is a learning opportunity for everyone. It's not just specifically targeted to women of color. This is about who we are as a community. It's not about demonizing men and it's not demonizing white people (laughs) about all of us how we can uplift each other and how we can create an environment where we all win where do you take the research next like do you see this being ongoing are there other things and deeper wells to dig into or do you take this piece of work for now and disseminate it more like what is this practice that you're developing and where else can it go Man, the music industry isn't the only industry struggling with diversity issues. So I can imagine that at some point we'd be able to expand beyond the industry. In terms of where I would love to see the data, I I just want to see it used to create better opportunities. I think the more people recognize and legitimize the voices of BIPOC folks in this business, the more they're able to increase their profits and amass larger audience. So it really is for everyone's benefit. So that's where I would like to see if we, if we can move in a direction where there's more of everyone at the table, that would satisfy me. You know, if you're ever up for it and if it's ever of interest, I would, I would love it. If if you ever record one of your presentations of the report, I would love to air that as an episode. I think people would really enjoy it. I know I would love to, to witness it. So that's a standing invitation. If you want to come back and we can record you doing it, or if you do it somewhere else and it gets recorded, I would love to go through that. I I would love to be an audience member and see it all presented. Yeah. No problem. Yes. And spreading the word is the most important thing. I am actually giving the presentation at the Measure of Music conference, which is a virtual conference, which I can share the link with you if you want to share it with your listeners. But like I said, I'm also presenting at South by Southwest. So if you're out in the Austin area in mid-March, look out for my presentation. Then I'm also presenting a bit of the data at Next Gen U, which is a panel that the Music Biz Association puts on for their student members. So if you're a student who wants to have access to the data, I'll be presenting it today. And there's a lot going on right now, a lot of opportunities to, to hear the information. But sure, if you want to have me on the show again to give the presentation, I'm happy to do those. That's great. Yeah, I would like to do that. Thank you very much for making time. Thank you. Of course. No, thank you for having me. And I just encourage everyone to utilize your voice and advocate for yourself. Thank you so much, Janisha Jones. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're presented by Osiris Media. Executive producers are Lawrence Purrier, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Matt Dwyer. Our producer is Michael Donaldson, and theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. 
If you like what you've heard, please share us with a friend and leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com or at spotlightonpod on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.